This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, bat populations across North America have been devastated in recent years by a fungus known as white nose syndrome. That's prompted public awareness campaigns and citizen science programs to help bring the situation to the attention of the public, many of whom might not fully understand the role of local bat populations and how they're being affected. Well, my guest today are all involved in bat conservation efforts in the Atlantic region. They include Darian Washinger, the Atlantic Bat Conservation Project Technician with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative Atlantic Region in PEI. Hello, Darian. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Jordy Seegers is a National Bat Health Program Coordinator with the National Office of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. Hi, Jordy. Hi, thanks for having us. And Jessica Humber is an ecosystem management ecologist with the FFA's Wildlife Division and Department of Conservation. She's also the local bat expert. She's in Corner Brook. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Linda. So uh, welcome all three of you. I'm not sure who to start uh, with, but I wanted to find out uh, a little bit more about local bat populations in Atlantic Canada. How many bat species to, do we have? Who wants to go first? Sure. Uh, So we've got eight bat species in Atlantic Canada, two of which are resident in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's the little brown myotis and the northern myotis. And there is also some vagrant records of the hoary bat in Newfoundland. I'm not sure about Labrador. Maybe Jessica can comment on that. But uh, the two main species on Newfoundland and Labrador, the northern myotis and the little brown myotis. And uh, how big are these creatures? They're quite small. They weigh about the amount of a loony. So if you think of holding a loony, they're quite uh, small in their weight. And for wingspan, it's about less than a foot. So around 10 inches when they're fully spread out. So they're quite small, smaller than people typically believe. So even so, a a foot uh, wingspan for a creature that weighs about the same as a loony, they're, they're made to fly. They are, and their wings are actually their hands, so they have membranes in between your fingers, if you were comparing it to a human, and that's how they fly. So it is different with birds that use their whole wings to fly. Bats, they have what we call plagiopatagium, which is a fancy term for skin in between the fingers, which is how they fly. Right, because they're just ad- adapted hands. Exactly, yep. yeah. Um, what do they prey on? So the bats in uh, Canada are insectivores, meaning they eat nocturnal insects. So they can eat up to half of their body weight in a single night, which offers pest control for humans, for agriculture, and they're just really good for the ecosystem that way. And yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. So what is their exact role in the ecosystem? What do they help to do? Yep, they help to keep down those pest insects. So there are some numbers touch that if you're looking Um, specifically at agriculture. So there was a study done in the United States that showed they provided a billion dollars or more in agricultural pest control. So there's different bat species around the world providing different ecosystem services. So some eat fruit, and then they're able to disperse seeds that way. 
Um, but the ones in North America, specifically in Canada, are insectivores, keeping down those pest population, those mosquitoes, um, beetles, and uh, moths as well. Do they have any favorites that they like to seek out? Uh, for the two bat species that we're talking about mostly today, moths and flies, I believe, are the, the two top uh, orders of insects that we have. Beetles are also up there, as well as Trichoptera, so aquatic in- insects as well. And generally speaking, where do they live? So it depends on the time of year when we're talking about where they live. So in the summer, they typically uh, form maternal roosts if we're talking about females and their pups. And if males and non-pregnant females will also form different types of roosts. And those are typically in natural structures. So they really like standing dead trees. They find crevices or cracks in the standing dead tree and form their colonies there. Um, During fall and into winter, they form hibernacula, which is where they're sleeping during the winter. And that's typically in caves or mines. And there's a few other different structures. And we're still trying to figure that out, which is why the hotline is really great resources for people to call in if they're seeing bats in the fall or in the winter. So we're still we're still learning a lot about these little these little guys. Yeah, but I mean they're nocturnal animals, so they are typically difficult to study, and they're especially the males. And if it's not within an anthropogenic structure, so some maternity colonies are in buildings, um, they're quite hard to find and track. So it's always a learning process with them. And Jordy, I was about to ask, you know, some people may live their whole life without ever seeing a bat. Why is it? Is it because of the nocturnal nature of these little little creatures? Well, definitely uh, you'll notice that it's it's outdoorsy people, uh, uh, often of people who like to fish. They are the ones who are more likely to see bats. Uh, Otherwise, you're really dependent on uh, if you happen to have a colony uh, living near you, uh, a maternity colony in your attic or in your neighbor's attic, you might see them in your backyard. Uh, But if you're in the city, uh, you don't tend to see them very often. And yeah, they are kind of elusive creatures. So they're in that they they wake up at night. Um, So even when they're flying around, they're hard to see at night. uh, most of the sounds that bats make, especially the, the talking about echolocation, the sounds that they use to navigate in complete darkness, uh, they are not audible by our ears. So uh, unlike many birds that we can hear sting and we can see them fly around, uh, we just don't have that luxury with bats. Right. So at night, they're kind of dark and you're not able to see them and you can't hear them. Exactly. So uh, bats have gotten a bit of a bad rep over the years, thanks, I guess, in large part to Hollywood. But what should people know about our local bat populations, Jordy? Um, well, one of the important things, of course, is what Darian already mentioned, is that the, the amazing ecological impact that bats have, just how important they are for nature as well as for us directly in that role of pest control. Uh, also, since you mentioned Hollywood, uh, people tend to associate bats with vampires, uh, especially around Halloween time. People often think about vampire bats. Um, and while, while vampire bats do exist, there are three different species of vampire bats. Uh, we don't have them in Newfoundland and Labrador. We don't have them anywhere in Canada. Um, these species only live in Mexico and Central and South America. So we, we don't have to worry about that. Um, so in, in general, bats like 
any other wildlife species uh, are to be left alone. If you leave them alone, they typically leave you alone, uh, and then they can just fulfill these uh, essential roles in nature, um, and we can happily coexist. Exactly. And, you know, we often think of, you know, the vampire bats and that sort of thing. And some bats are better looking than others, I guess we'll say. But the local species are kind of cute. They are, yeah. I mean, I think uh, we're all pretty biased here, of course, because we we work on bats uh, pretty much around the clock. Um, But... Uh, I mean, not a lot of people get the chance to see a bat up close, and and, and even if you do, then then it might be an injured bat, and again, like all wildlife, you do not want to handle these sorts of animals, Um, so you don't want to come too close, but we have the luxury of, of seeing bats up close quite regularly, and yeah, they to me they look like little teddy bears, really. Um, and then, of course, in other parts of the world, you've got larger bats. Uh, some groups of bats are called flying foxes, and they are called that because they actually look like foxes. They are beautiful animals, uh, large eyes, uh, just like puppy dog eyes, uh, but with uh, four or, or three foot wings attached to them as well. <laughs> yeah, they're quite large, aren't they? Those flying foxes, yeah, and and they are a very striking-looking animal. Uh, When we come back after the break, I want to talk about white-nose syndrome and what kind of impact it's having. Our guests today on On Target are Jordi Seegers, who we just heard from with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative National Office. Darian Washinger is with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative Atlantic Region and PEI. And Jessica Humber is in Corner Brook. She's our local bat expert. We'll hear more from her as well when we come back right after the break join us for on target one hour in which linda swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your vocm and we're back we're talking about bats um, my guests today darian washinger and jordy seegers are in pei jessica humber is in corner brook she's an ecosystem management ecologist with the ffa's wildlife division she's also a department of conservation bat expert so i've been told uh jessica what are bat, bat populations like here in newfoundland and labrador uh, it really depends on the part of Newfoundland and Labrador that you're in. Um, we are definitely seeing some pretty major declines in bat populations in the western parts of the island of Newfoundland. Um, we first saw white-nose syndrome show up um, right down on the southwest coast of Newfoundland around uh, St. Andrews, um, that sort of area close to port basque And we've been sort of tracking the spread of this fungal disease uh, through the western part of the province anyway. Way. And unfortunately, as of this past year in our, our monitoring surveys that we do, we have documented declines of, you know, at a minimum of 94% decline up into 99% decline in bat populations out this way. Um, in fact, one of the, uh, the caves that I monitor, a hibernacula site where bats overwinter, um, where in the past we've had well over a thousand bats. Generally in the winter, there were 14 bats in there this past winter. So we're seeing really dramatic declines, which is very unfortunate and just sort of sad to see as well after many years of monitoring out this way. Um, on the, I guess, eastern Newfoundland and Avalon, we haven't yet documented these large-scale declines that have occurred in western Newfoundland and elsewhere in Atlantic Canada. And in fact, we have not yet confirmed white-nose syndrome to occur in that area. So we're, we're doing a lot of close monitoring for the fungus um, in eastern and on the Avalon because 
we sort of expect that it, it will not be long and we'll, we'll probably start seeing declines, unfortunately, in bat populations out that way, just based on what's happened elsewhere and based on the fact that we know bats do travel um, many kilometers um, and they've been documented traveling from the Avalon to western Newfoundland. So. Uh, that's the situation on the island. In Labrador, we don't have as much data, of course. It's really difficult to get a lot of good um, information in the vast landscape in Labrador, but um, the, the fungus that causes white nose syndrome, which is called PD for short, we did detect starting in 2019 in the Goose Bay area um, and some areas surrounding Goose Bay, and we've detected it each year since then. So there's the populations, we haven't really documented a big decline yet, although some very, very early uh, monitoring just from this spring sort of started to indicate we might be getting a decline there, but uh, that's very preliminary. But we certainly expect to see those declines as this devastating fungal disease continues to move throughout the province. Uh, how is it typically spread? Is it naturally occurring or is it spread through other bats or through birds, for instance? It is mainly spread through bat-to-bat contact. Bats are very social um, animals that they sort of live together in tight colonies. Um, in particular, white-nose syndrome grows and thrives in underground, like cave and abandoned mine, and underground environments where bats like to overwinter. Um, the fungus is a cold-loving fungus and high humidity, so it, it grows perfectly in the sites that bats also choose to overwinter. So um, the fungus sort of proliferates in those environments, and the fungus is also very um, persistent in those environments. So when bats leave their underground sites in the spring and they go on and they, they have their pups and join maternity colonies, um, they will shed some of this fungus from them and you won't necessarily see it or detect it on them all the time through the summer. But of course, when they go back in the fall and start re-entering these sites again, they can be reinfected. And then a lot of the spread from bat to bat occurs in the fall when there's, it's a very social time. There's bats swarming. It's mating season. There's a lot of um, travel between sites and it's suspected that a lot of the movement of the spores of this fungus occurs at that time. Now, it is possible as well for people to spread it, um, and that is actually the suspected cause of the first introduction of white-nose syndrome into North America, which was first detected back in 2006 in New York State. Um, the fungus is native to parts of Europe, um, and so it's it's actually expected it's suspected that a caver or spelunker came over probably from Europe and might have had the the spore on um, footwear or, or clothing or cave equipment or something. So um, for that reason, you know, there are things that people can do to try to prevent further spread if they're visiting sites like that, but or if they're, you know, part of a caving community. But generally, the, the spread does tend to be uh, bat-to-bat contact. Wow, so humans do have a big impact here. Um, so, um, Darian, what? why does white-nose syndrome have this, dev- I mean, a fungus? You wouldn't think it would have that kind of a devastating impact, but why is it so uh, difficult for bats? So the fungus, it's called white-nose because the fungus starts to grow in the muzzle, and so there's a cascading effects after that. So once the fungus gets on the bat, it can really damage the tissue membranes and cause them to wake up from their torpor. So all during the winter, they're in this deep, what we call torpor. It's a deep sleep where they can reserve all of their energy for the entirety of the winter and just wake up very infrequently. However, when they have white nose syndrome, 
they start to wake up more frequently. And during winter, you know, the insect populations are down, water is frozen. So they're not able to go out and forage for insects. And so they end up either dehydrating or dying of starvation or even of exposure through the cold winters. So white nose syndrome certainly has an impact once it gets into the cave system and moves through the population. How sad. So they essentially either they starve or, or they uh, dehydrate. Yeah, those are the leading leading causes, which is it is quite sad. Is there any way to get rid of it? There have been a whole bunch of different things. Jordy might be a better person to talk to about this, so I'll throw it to him. Yeah, I, I can address that a little bit. So uh, um, as you mentioned, my uh, current uh, job title is Bet Health Program Coordinator, and that Bet Health Program came from what we call our, our White Nose Syndrome, our National White Nose Syndrome Response Program. Um, so um, I, I believe the question was, is there a way to get rid of it? Um, so bats themselves, um, they can't really get rid of it. As Jessica mentioned, they might shed it. They might survive a winter. They go to their summering colonies. Um, and then once they go back into these wintering, they might just pick those spores right up again and then reinfect themselves. So there we're counting a little bit on, and, and we're seeing that in some places already, that that's, um, we're seeing anywhere from 85% to 99% mortality at, at these sites. Um, but at most sites, there is usually not 100% mortality. There are some survivors. So researchers are trying to understand how are they surviving. It might be some sort of just genetic advantage uh, that some of these bats have, and then we're counting on basically on evolution to take over and on these survivors to reproduce and give birth to, to pups, uh, baby bats, that hopefully also have this immunity that their parents had. Um, but the researchers across North America are also studying means to treat these bats, um, either by giving them sort of, sort of uh, antiviral bacteria that are naturally present on some of these bats, uh, so that it's or antifungal bacteria, I should say, uh, that that prevents this fungus from growing on these bats in the first place. Uh, there are researchers who are testing uh, ultraviolet light that can actually kill this fungus. Um, and all sorts of like, stuff that they can spray into these caves or spray right onto bats that kills this fungus. The problem, though, with that that we're facing is that even if one of these methods is effective, uh, delivering it to the bats is always an issue because, as Darian said earlier, we just don't know so little about bats. We, we don't really know where they go, where most of them are hanging out. And even when we do, it might be very hard to... Um, to hike out to these cave sites, to go into this site and bring equipment and basically clean these bats up. So that's why we've moved from a national white nose syndrome response program to what we now call a more holistic uh, bat health program, where we're not just focusing on trying to manage this disease that is very hard to manage, um, but we're trying to manage bats in a way where we consider all the threats that they are facing. So bats that uh, are in buildings and people want to get rid of them. And um, we don't want people to try to kill these bats because we're talking about endangered species. So we provide uh, guidance and documents and training for pest control operators on how to properly remove bats from buildings, keeping humans happy and healthy and keeping the bats happy and healthy. Um, 
and we're trying to address basically all the threats that bats are facing. Uh, and th- there are many, such as predation by cats and uh, wind farms are a threat to bats and pesticides and other toxins in the environment. So we really need to basically, we're relying on some of these bats to survive white nose syndrome on their own. And then we need to do everything we can to mitigate all these other threats that the bats are facing so that these rare survivors uh, that might hold the key to eventual repopulation of these bat species that we uh, make sure we give them the best chances of surviving in uh, the coming years, decades, centuries. And I want to talk a little bit more about that and, and those efforts and the bat hotline when we come back after the break. My guests today are Darian Washinger, Jordy Seegers, they're both in PEI, and Jessica Humber is in Corner Brook. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're talking bats today. My guests are Darian Washinger, Atlantic Bat Conservation Project Technician with the Canadian Wildlife health cooperative in the Atlantic region. She's based in PEI. So is Jordy Seegers. He's National Bat Health Program Coordinator with the National Office of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. And Jessica Humber is in Corner Brook. She's an ecosystem management ecologist with the FFA's Wildlife Division. She's also the Department of Conservation's local bat expert. And uh, Jordy, I wanted to pick up from where you left off there. We were talking about how do you get rid of it and that sort of thing. And I think it was Jessica mentioned that this was introduced to North America in two 2006, we believe, by a spelunker coming over from Europe. How have, have other, I mean, it's having a devastating impact on North America, but how have other jurisdictions in the world been handling in that? And is there anything we can learn from those areas? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as Jessica mentioned, uh, introduced uh, accidentally, we should say likely by a spelunker. We, we don't know. Um, but in, in 2006, it, uh, it appeared in New York State uh, in this, this cave that's also a big tourist attraction. So that's where kind of the, the suspicion comes from that it may have just been on someone, on a tourist who came into that cave and had been in a cave in Europe before. Um, so it started in, in the United States and, and early on in those days they started learning about this fungus that had actually never even been described before because if uh, there's so many fungal species uh, underground too is hard to get to as if they don't cause any issues there's not really any reason or resources for that matter to study them but so now first time that this fungus causes an issue uh, in the United States they started studying it uh, they launched their white nose syndrome national response program early on um, and so Canada followed uh, relatively soon after uh, white nose syndrome first appeared uh, in Canada in around 2010 in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, from there, in the years after, spread to New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, uh, and Prince Edward Island. Um, and then it took a couple of years uh, for it to then also spread to uh, the island of Newfoundland and also west to Manitoba. And of course, in the United States, it had been spreading uh, in all directions already uh, over all of those years. Um, and so we formed a white nose syndrome response program around 2012, about two years after it first emerged in Canada. Uh, and at that point, of course, we kind of had a, a running start because the U.S. had already been dealing with this issue for a while. They already had a program in place. So we were able to kind of mirror our program here in Canada to that of the United States. And, and we continue to do that. So we continue to work very closely with the United States 
resources are shared uh, between our two countries. Um, the United States also provides a lot of funding to Canada, and of course the Canadian uh, federal government as well as others are providing funding to study and manage white-nose syndrome. Um, so yeah, we, we collaborate on this, learn from each other, uh, share all of these ideas. Um, but it, it really is a North American issue. Um, as mentioned, the fungus is, uh, has been found in Europe. That's likely where it is native uh, because there's genetic diversity of the fungus there, which suggests it's been there for a while. Um, and it's not causing any major mass mortality in bats there. Uh, but then once it was found in North America, the first signs basically after seeing that white fluffiness on their nose, hence the name white nose syndrome, uh, bats started dying massively, which is a very clear indicator that this fungus was new here and, and thus, thus introduced. Um, as to our knowledge, it hasn't been introduced uh, anywhere else in, on any other continents yet. Uh, and we'd like to keep it that way, of course. Uh, so we're also uh, occasionally working with um, bat managers, wildlife managers and researchers in, say, Australia who contact us and ask, what are you doing to kind of minimize the risk of it spreading within the continent? And so we have decontamination procedures and guidelines regarding that for those people who do go into caves and mines or other hibernation sites or people who handle bats. Uh, things they can do to decontaminate all of their gear, uh, basically kill any potential spores of the fungus on there. So uh, countries like Australia, for example, have shown great interest in these protocols uh, and are likely applying that there as well, just because us as people, we now travel across the globe um, with such great ease and, and so frequently every day people go across the, glo uh, the globe to all corners. Um, so. It, it, it's one of these scary things that is it only a matter of time for this to show up on other continents? Um, and, and we're not sure, but uh, it's great to see that other countries, other continents are taking some steps to um, at least try to prevent the introduction of this fungus there and, and learn from the things that we in North America have already learned. So is the reason why it's not uh, really having the same impact in Europe uh, because the bat, bat populations there have uh, adapted to live with it over the centuries, I suppose? Very likely, yes, um, that indeed that, that this, this fungus, this pathogen that, that has the potential to cause disease in some species um, has likely just evolved along with bats evolving in, uh, in Europe. So it's kind of a bit of an, ar it's, it's often an arms race. You see that between any sort of prey and predator as well, uh, that over the course of evolution, predators, uh, it's advantageous for predators, and in this case, a fungus, uh, to get the upper hand, evolve certain mechanisms that they can infect a host or that a predator can more easily catch its prey. But in evolution, uh, those prey animals, or in this case, the bats that uh, uh, had to deal with this, this fungus in, in Europe, they, the ones that survive have this genetic advantage over all the others. So it's an arms race, potentially, where the fungus keeps adapting and the bats keep adapting, and that's likely just what happened in Europe. So we have a population there uh, that is, uh, at least to the most part, uh, immune or resistant to this fungus. Um, and so Unfortunately, our bats in North America, they've never been exposed to this pathogen. So there was never any reason uh, or never any, any trigger, no mechanism for these bats to have to evolve some sort of mechanism uh, against 
uh, this fungus to fight it off. So maybe there's uh, some hope there then. Um, uh, our guests today are talking about bats and white nose syndrome, Darian Washington and Jordy Seegers. And we're, Jessica Humber is in Corner Brook. She's the uh, local Department of Conservation back expert. And we're going to talk a little bit about the bat hotline, what has been learned from all of that, and uh, how people can help coming up right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOC all night show midnight on your VOCM. We're talking about bats and white nose syndrome, which is having a devastating impact on bat populations in North America, including here in Newfoundland and Labrador. My guests are Darian Washinger and Jordy Seegers with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative in PEI, based in PEI, I should say. And uh, Jessica Humber is with the Department of Conservation, and she's based in Corner Brook. And uh, Jessica, when was white nose syndrome first noticed here? It was first noticed in southwestern Newfoundland in 2017. It was the first detection. The next year after that, we detected at, uh, I think, six other sites, all in western, um, up as far as about Rocky Harbor, uh, starting to go, to go up the northern peninsula, and uh, as far east as Steady Brook, um, Little Rapids, those areas. So uh, it's it seems to have been steadily spreading since that time. and. Um, and in Labrador, like I mentioned earlier, there has been detection of the fungus itself uh, in the Goose Bay area um, as of 2019. So uh, it, it certainly appears that it's probably also been moving north from Quebec into Labrador, um, just based on, on the, where the positive sites are in, in Quebec. Um, so it's been a few years now, and we're just starting to see population declines in certain areas. And, and other areas are, thankfully, we still have really healthy bat populations, which is fantastic. Um, of course, we're, you know, in those areas, we still have the potential for bats to be getting into uh, human spaces and in attics and sheds and those sorts of areas. So uh, people, you know, still sometimes run into issues with bats, and it's so important to, to be able to talk to people and help them understand the conservation because it's, it's really hard for the public to understand sometimes that this is actually an endangered species we're talking about here. And that's why we want to take so much care in how we deal with these situations where bats conflict with people um, because we know the trajectory that their populations are on. But it is hard for the public to understand sometimes when they are in an area where there are still really large bat populations. So um, I don't know, maybe that's a good lead-in for the bat hotline. But uh, And I know you want to talk a little bit more about that. And, and I'll leave that to our, our Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative folks to ch talk more about. But I will say that uh, it's a program that's been ongoing for a few years now and that the province is collaborating on and, and very strongly supporting. Um, and we're working closely. So it's, you know, it's not just a, um, a mainland initiative. It's, it's the four Atlantic provinces partnering on this and, and federal departments as well. And it's an absolutely fabulous program and, and really deals and, and gets into sort of um, conservation of bats and buildings and, and other bat health issues as well. So, yeah, maybe that's a, a, yeah, good, <laughs> a good segue for the bat hotline. But uh, well, Darian, what is the bat hotline and what have you learned from it? So we keep mentioning the BAT hotline, and I'll just throw it out there. It's a physical number, a toll-free number, one eight three three four three four 434 bat So that's 1-833-434-2287. 
So like I said, it's a toll-free number that we established in 2017, and it's been running to connect people with bat experts. So right now, the Atlantic region is based out of the Atlantic Veterinary College at the University of PEI, and we're answering these phone calls from all across the Atlantic provinces. And so we want to allow people to call in anything and everything regarding to bats. So this could be anything from a bat sighting, you saw a bat while you were fishing, that could be good for us to know. Any questions you have, if you're looking to attract bats to your property or if you're looking to install bat boxes. And it <clears throat> also we're always keeping in mind of bat and human contact. We want to minimize, of course, we never want people handling bats. So if ever we're in a case where bats are entering living parts or spaces in the house where people are also living, we can give guidance on that as well. So really it's an open way for the public to get involved with bat conservation. We want to know where bats are, what they're doing, and so it's a way for stewardship, citizen scientists to call in and help us kind of direct researchers to where they need to be focusing their efforts on. So how many bat sightings have been reported to this hotline since 2017? So since 2017, we've had over 1,000 calls. I think we're about to 1,026 now. And that's, again, all of the provinces combined. Newfoundland accounts for about 250 or a little bit more than that calls. So you're making up a good proportion coming out of Newfoundland and Labrador. And are all these um, sightings like, hey, I, I got some bats in my shed, I need to get rid of them, or I just came across a, a dead bat in my backyard, you know, what kind of calls do you get? Yeah, so the predominant calls are, hey, I saw a bat, and we would kind of just note that down in our database. But also we get calls of potential maternal colonies, and those are often found in, like, the attics of people's houses. So those are especially important calls for us to receive as well. Um, so especially in Newfoundland and Labrador, there's a whole bunch of cabins on the landscape, and this is typically where bats choose to have their roost because it is nice and warm. It's protected from predators, protected from the elements. So they're often within those structures as well. So we receive a lot of calls inquiring about what exactly to do when you find a bat in your building. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different factors to go in that, but we typically do say that bats, it's not impossible to coexist with bats. So if it's possible to leave the bats there and there's no way for the bats to get into the household, and so again, we're always looking to minimize human and bat contact, um, it is safe to have bats in your attic. So we did give guidance on cleanup procedures with guano or if people have any type of hesitations that way, we can give guidance on that. <clears throat> And also, if you, we get calls on accidental bats in buildings. So we've received a few calls where sometimes a bat accidentally ends up in the living space. So bats are not like rodents. People like to kind of put them side by side, but they aren't going into your house seeking food or anything of that sort. Typically, when they're inside the living space, they're there by accident. So it's important to understand that. And the best advice that we can give is try to first figure out how they got in so was it an open window because that would be an easy fix you just close the screen and you shouldn't have any more problems however they can also get into areas that are about the size of a dime so they can really squeeze in small nooks and crannies so locating those are important if you're having bats coming into the living spaces but otherwise we just kind of advise folks to carefully 
get the bat outside. So again, never contact bats. <clears throat> never like touch them with your hands. So typically you could put a box over it and slide a piece of cardboard underneath and transport it safely that way. Again, always make sure you're wearing gloves, thick gloves that in the case of any the bat escaping, again, minimizing contact. But we can give you all this information on the hotline when you call in. So really anything, any encounter with bats, we've kind of received a call regarding. And you mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if it was yourself or, or Jessica mentioned earlier, uh, or maybe it was even Jordy, but um, uh, in regards to informing uh, local pest control, because I would imagine that for a lot of people, they're not aware of the bat hotline, and that's the first call they're going to make. So you've been working to um, inform pest control companies uh, of the proper procedures when they get a call for a bat colony or a bat found on a property? Yep, that's correct. In the past, we've held workshops with pest control officers, and that gives them the knowledge to keep themselves safe and to safely um, exclude the bats. And they also know that bats are protected. And so if they are being asked to remove them during a certain time of year, they do need a permit. So those things are also important to consider. Uh, we really, so bats are protected in Newfoundland under the Endangered Species Act, which means if you're going to exclude them during a specific time of year, and that's May to September, then you're going to need a permit. So that's something that they need to know, and these are why we train the pest control officers, so they know how to do it safely, and they know the best time of year for exclusion. Uh, Jessica, if there was one final thing you wanted to let people know about bats uh, who may have never seen one or counted one before, what's your main message to them in the last few seconds or minutes of the show? Uh, the main message, I guess, is just to reiterate that whether you like them or not, per, on a personal level, uh, bats are incredibly important pieces of our ecosystem. And any bat that you might see or, or deem a pest in your own home may be an important piece of, you know, as you already described, um, it, it may be a bat that has actually been resistant to whiteness syndrome. It may be one of a small number of survivors. So we need to do everything else we can do in light of whiteness syndrome, which is absolutely wiping out bat populations. We need to do what we can to make sure that the remaining bats on the landscape um, can survive and can reproduce because that is, that is the key to, you know, seeing these species eventually, hopefully, not be endangered anymore. So um, anything that you can do to help with, uh, you know, bat monitoring, uh, call the bat hotline for advice on anything at all, whether it's problem bats, whether it's, you know, you wanting to go out and helping to monitor bats. There's so much that the public can do and the public can have an enormous positive impact on our bat populations in the province. Jessica Humber, Darian Washinger, and I'm sorry I've been calling you Jordy. It's Jordy Seegers. <laughs> I want to thank no you worries. all three for uh, joining us on the show this afternoon. Fascinating stuff. I think you've done uh, a world of good for the bats. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Take care. And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for another show. Uh, talk to you then.